0: This podcast was recorded on the traditional lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation and the traditional lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. We pay our respects to the elders, both past and present. Hello and welcome to Sunburnt Screens, an odyssey through the landscape of Australian cinema. This podcast is brought to you by the film lovers at Umbrella Entertainment and their streaming service, Broly.com.au. A complete and utter celebration of cinema awaits you there. I'm Alexi Toliopoulos, and yes, I am your host. On this episode, we voyage into an evolution of the kind of screen stories given voice in this country through two powerful expressions of queer cinema. Head on is Anna Kokkinos's provocative exploration of a young man pulled and twisted between his queerness, his Greek cultural heritage, and modern Australian culture in one confronting night in nocturnal Melbourne. And then we'll close out the episode with filmmaker Goran Stalevsky, whose exceptionally moving film of an age has captured the tender hearts of many, including myself. An idea that I really want to explore and question in this episode in regards to this very boundary-breaking thread of Australian cinema was this idea that queer films can challenge the status quo, can change society or cultural norms around it. It can change and push the conversation forward. And I think these films are a great example of that. But first, we begin in conversation with the former program director of the Melbourne Queer Film Festival, Spiro Economopolis. I also want to ask, what was the first... Australian film that you saw that you felt like reflected your existence or your life in some way.
1: Hmm. Oh, that's an interesting one. Uh, I feel like I guess you know, there's a there's been a few different films that have uh, spoken to me in different ways. Obviously, you know, films like Head On, for example. You know, me being a you know queer Greek Australian guy, there were elements of that that spoke to me. I would say so. I think you know, I would sort of point that out. But you know, I think for a long time as well, Australian cinema. And TV, uh, I felt like kind of probably underrepresented me in a lot of ways. And it's not until I think, you know, sort of now that I'm really seeing, you know, like representation kind of being a bit more sort of broad and sort of diverse.
0: Yeah. I mean, let's start talking about that then, because, you Mm. know, when we think about like Queer Cinema Australia... There are some really big, important examples that really stick out, like head on, obviously Mm. Priscilla, uh, the Some of Us. But where do you think it really begins? Where do you think it kind of kicks off as a cycle? Were there precursors to those big films in Mm. the 90s?
1: You know, you look at, you you know, you can probably go as far back if you wanted to as uh, things like, um, you know, Dad and Dave Come to Town in the 30s that had, you know, like a queer coded character. It was that classic thing where films back then wouldn't depict openly gay characters. That they were represented by you know the sissy prototype and dad and dave definitely had one of those but it wasn't really until uh australia brought in the r certificate finally back in the 70s where there was a bit more of a i guess an openness in representation in sexuality and we started seeing queer characters pop up in films again you know like minor characters and, and interesting enough in like Documentary style films, and you got to you got to hand it to you know the exploitation genre for getting in there and bringing different kinds of representations and sexualities in films like Phantasm and the ABCs and Love and Sex. And on TV, I think that's that was sort of another thing as well, where it was more like documentary-style programs, like Checkerboard, you know, which had the uh, I think the depiction of the first gay kiss, you know, there's a portrait of these two gay men, and another This Day Tonight, I think it was called, which had the first lesbian couple, and that, they were actually part of a really fantastic documentary yeah. called Why Did You Have to Tell the World? That looked at their relationship and looked back on that sort of groundbreaking interview that they did for Australian TV, which was pretty incredible for the time. And I think also, you know, Australia has that weird culture of, like, you know, mateship and ocarism. And within that space, uh, which is very much about male sort of friendships and stuff, there isn't kind of room for nuance or uh, anything that might hint at something more than just friendship. So it's kind of amazing when you see films like Wake in Fright, for example, where that actually does kind of tip over and there's a real strong allusion to
0: queerness and sexuality that sort of plays out in that film, which I think is really fascinating. It's a great movie. Yeah, and such a good point as well because so much of of, I guess, what we now consider classic Australian cinema. They are mm. so, like, male, masculine-focused, and a lot of them are, like, studies on masculinity. And they're, Absolutely, I, yeah. I think it's a really prescient point that you have of, like, how there are those mm. moments where they tip over. Yeah, and even, even like, the some of us, people talk a lot about that being groundbreaking, but it was very
1: much about a celebration of male kind of aquerism, essentially, and, you know, those two characters are, you know, real kind of masculine coded men, you know, and it's no coincidence that Jack Thompson's in it, who's kind of riffing on a lot of his kind of iconic roles from Australian cinema in the past of the
0: classic male Australian ocker. So, yeah, it's... Yeah, definitely. And now to Kokinos's Head On, the film adaptation of Christos Salkis' stream-of-conscious novel, Loaded. You want to have new experiences? Don't you want to be free?
1: Ari, oh, this is Sean.
2: Something's troubling
0: you. You remind me of something.
2: Hmm?
0: I saw the face. Head-on has had a profound impact on my life. It was quite literally the first film I ever wrote anything meaningful about back in high school with quite simply two of the most electric and bold performances from a post-heartbreak high Alex Dimitriades and a personal hero of mine, Paul Kapsis, The film somehow captured a part of my world growing up in a hypocrisy of Greek leftists who were torn between feeling progressive and old school. As my understanding of my own Greek identity and sexual identity continue to grow and evolve throughout my life, so does my relationship to head on. So, as you can imagine, I was actually somewhere between life-alteringly excited and overwhelmingly nervous to talk to Anakokinos. Here is our chat, and uh, you can probably detect some of that giddy energy in my voice. I think it was one of those early films that spoke to my identity, and I think it's one of those... When you're like, you know, when you're discovering film or when you're falling in love with film, I think part of it is finding those films that are not just like a portal to another world, but those films that offer a reflection onto your own life and your own identity. And I think it's one of those films that's just really, it captured all that for me.
2: Well, I'm, I'm so thrilled to hear that because I think the film expressed so many things about my own identity, uh, my own exploration of my cultural background, my migrant working class background the queer identity issue, and how that sat within that broader cultural, you know, the problematic stuff that happens within certainly the Greek culture in terms of sexuality, but also the mainstream culture. So it touched on so many things that were very relevant to me, and also, as it turned out, to a lot of young people at the time. But I really deeply appreciate that, because it was a real struggle to make the film. Let me tell you, it was not an easy ride. I mean, you know, thinking back to when, you know, I read Christos's book, which I felt was something, you know, I, I read it in one sitting. I, I literally read it, put it down and I thought, wow, this novel really speaks to me. And it's as if my brother is speaking to me on some level. Wow. It was that personal. And I was very much in that phase of really wanting to do highly personal films, but also films that I felt were expressing a point of view that I had not seen before in Australian filmmaking, And that was a very big thing that was going on for me at the time and others, I think, but particularly for me. But nonetheless, it was a huge struggle. So it took me, you know, I think I went to every producer in the country trying to get that film up and, you know, virtually got rejected by everybody because it was seen as too out there, provocative. What was this film? Was it porno? What on earth are you trying to do? So on every single level, the film, when we wrote the script, the script just looked like something that we had never made before in this country, Mm. and therefore everyone just rejected it. So that was kind of the first battle that I had in terms of getting the film made.
0: I mean, quite simply, it's got some of the most powerful, amazing performances in Australian cinema... Working with Alex Dimitriades and shaping the character of Ari, can you talk to me about how, like that creative process of how you form that character together for the screen?
2: Alex and I had just the best time together. I mean, that's the first thing. We had an extraordinary collaboration, and he, when he committed to the film, he was like 120% invested in it. And there were challenges, huge challenges for him in it, and I know that he was quite terrified of doing the film, but also that made him more excited and more committed mm. to not only overcoming those fears, but also transcending them. And we both had to do that. It wasn't just Alex. It was also a great challenge for me as well. In terms of the shaping of that character, I spent a lot of time, and this was really important to me, and I think it's ultimately why audience is connected to it, and that was that I wanted Ari to be both an outsider in his culture, uh, someone who was butting up against, rebelling against, uh, questioning his culture, his family, his friends, and yet at the same time a deeply connected insider. And that sense of him being emotionally connected to his family and yet needing to escape them, needing to define himself or not define himself outside those parameters, seemed to me to be the core of that character. And that's certainly something that I found in, in the book. That was kind of like a really exciting dimension to him and so I spoke to Alex a lot about we needed to emotionally connect with this character and feel that emotion in him in order for us to go on this fairly wild crazy out there journey and so that's something that he really responded to you know coming from his own Greek background understanding that idea this profound sense that we have of deeply loving our parents and yet needing to reject their values their their way of thinking and that was the key thing that he and I worked on constantly so I would often say to Alex you know even when we were shooting you know stay open to the camera just really be open rather than closing Ari off to us in terms of what he's thinking or feeling at any given moment. So that was kind of really important. The other thing that we did together is that we rehearsed. And so we spent a lot of time in the rehearsal process. You know, I created an ensemble approach to my work in film. We had a lot of Greek Australian actors involved. We kind of built the film together as an ensemble. And that was very important. And all the actors were bringing to it common feelings, themes, and sensibilities. And so he was also, you know, Alex was also very supported by the cast that we had as well. And so, in that sense, Alex was you know, I can't imagine the film without him, really.
0: One thing that, like, really, you know, perhaps for non-Greek Australian audiences, like the more mainstream Australian audience for this film, one thing that probably is a bit surprising for them is the parents have kind of, like, these more old-schooler attitudes, but they're also presented as these revolutionary leftists. And I think, you know, that's very similar to my background. Like, my grandparents and my parents were, like, these very strong Greek leftists. But there is still that, like, I guess the old-school attitude, especially when it comes to, like, sexual or gender identity. I think it's just such a really evocative choice. Well,
2: I think that it was really important for me to express something about those leftist kind of Greek values, that it wasn't Mm. just a case of all Greeks being... You know, sort of completely conservative, that we had a great tradition post war of Greeks coming out to Australia who had very strong political views, leftist views. Certainly during the junta period, mm. there were a lot of Greeks who had to leave Greece because of their political persuasion. And there's certainly Greeks who were very right wing as well. So, Greek culture here, or the Greek diaspora here, had a very strong and lively political existence, you know, and I remember that very strongly as a kid. My parents were leftists, they were unionists, they were very much part of the development of Greek organisations and like, uh, well, Greek newspaper, Nels Kosmos, the Democritus Mm. Club. So there was a very big movement here amongst leftists who continued to contribute to ideas here, but also followed what was going on in Greece as well. And so what was interesting to me was to pose that What appears to be contradictory, and that is that Mm. politically progressive, but socially and culturally really conservative. And so my parents were very uh, progressive. Culturally, they were not as conservative as what's depicted in the story of Ari, but nonetheless, that conservatism on a social, cultural level was profound. And also, when it came to issues about sexuality, you know, who you partnered up with, who you married, who you went out with, all of those things then came under the Greek umbrella. And they saw everything through that lens. And I think that was very constraining. So even I remember even as a young teenager, my parents were relatively liberal, but all the Greek kids I went to school with, if there was a school dance, my father would drive all of us to the school dance because that was the only way the Greek girls could go to a dance if they were chaperoned in some way and my father used to do that you know dad was always the one that drove us and then he'd pick us up and you know and and if Greek girls ended up wanting to go out with an Australian guy that was completely taboo you know like you just didn't do that and so those constraints were really palpable and ever-present and so that meant that young Greek girls had to lead secret lives, had to, you know, <laughs> you know, live very covertly on all kinds of levels. And the big issue about what would happen if they you know came home with a non-Greek and said, I want to marry this person. That was huge. You know, that was massive. So imagine what it then felt like for someone growing up with some kind of different sexuality coming and saying, hey, guess what, mum and dad, I'm gay or I'm a lesbian or I'm, I'm queer whatever so those issues were huge and that's what the film spoke about really you know at its heart how do you navigate that when you know you're going to you know be uh, ostracized from your family if you come out or if you reveal who you truly feel you are.
0: It's so evocative here in the idea of understanding masculinity through Greekness And there's this moment I'm sure you get asked about a lot is the moment of connection where we see Ari and his father finally connect after like building everything up through like this, you know, through an imposed language barrier, through like this physical distance. And this moment where the Deli comes, where they connect through their culture together. Can you talk about like the music choice and how you constructed that scene?
2: Well, it's probably a scene that most people relate to, which is really interesting. You know, everyone talks about that scene. It was something that I, again, going back to that idea that I spoke about earlier, which was that I I believe that for Ari, his relationship to his father was, you know, so potent and so fraught. And yet they were able to come together in this moment through dance through the physicality of what they did in connection. And so that goes again to that idea I spoke about earlier that he's connected and disconnected. But this was a moment of purity, and I wanted that moment of purity to be there between these two men in a way that expressed something about the contradiction in masculinity for Greek men in particular, who are so tough and full of bravado and yet have this capacity to be tactile and physical with each other at the same time. It's very hard to describe that in words sometimes. So what I wanted to do was kind of convey that in in that dance. The choice of music was really important for me because it was a Dalara song that I knew very well. And it's a very poignant song and it is about connection. It is about the diaspora. It is about no matter where you go, you know, there is this thread between us. And so that felt like a very potent emotional moment between the two characters that also carries within it the capacity to bear the idea that Ari also sees himself as a major disappointment in the eyes of his father. And so it is both love and hate and everything in between. So that idea that you are also on some level profoundly disappointing your parents because you can't be the idealised version of the son that they had hoped for.
0: I think the physicality of that is something that's so, like this really interesting stream throughout the film because the first time you see Arya and his father interact, his father like winces and retracts from him. It's the first image you have of them together.
2: That's right. And I think that that physicality is like central to I don't know Greek culture. And so yes, it's a comment on masculinity, but it's also a comment on the way in which Greeks are able to embrace that they don't fear the physical, that they are very tactile, robust. People, when it comes to the way in which they they engage in the world and with each other and within their own culture and within their own families, I don't know what else I can say about it in the in that sense. It's it's, it's something that is ingrained, I guess, you know.
0: Yeah, truly, I think it's ingrained because it's. I love the way you put it through that contradiction of like the physicality of being tactile, of being you know, especially like these ideas of queer identity and the butting up against homophobia, yet Greek men, they kiss each other like every day. It's how they greet each other, no matter what they feel about each other at all.
2: That's right. And I think that that's, you know, look, I mean, I think there's no doubt that there is that, I wouldn't say ambiguity, but certainly there is a very strong queer culture within the Greek community here, but also in Greece itself. But the way in which it is expressed is hidden is not it's not open but it's an accepted part of being a greek man it is part of their masculinity the way in which they actually view their sexuality and that is something that that i think has endured for many generations
0: i think that's so interesting because i feel like the film itself has kind of like helped progress beyond that
2: for sure and i think that, like, that the the paradox of the film is that it, when it came out it completely divided greeks mm. And yet it united Greeks because suddenly they were able to they were given license to have a conversation about these things. Young people came to me and they said, "Head-on has liberated us because it's meant that we can talk to our parents about who we are, how we want to live our lives, and this film has generated that conversation." So you could say, on the one hand, it was divisive, but actually no, it propelled people into conversations, and by that, by that very act, suddenly there was some unity around the discussion, around the questions that it raised. So it was a very big cultural moment for Greeks. And certainly the more progressive Greeks around at the time welcomed it, promoted it. And it was almost like it's about time we've had something that's helped us frame these conversations in a way that is that's a relief, actually, for the younger generation, and it's probably on some level even for the older generation.
0: Sex in this film is portrayed with such beautiful intimacy, and I was wondering, how do you create and conceive and film these moments?
2: Well, I think that sensitivity and care and creating a very safe environment for the actors to explore the sex that was in the film was really important and these days nowadays we have intimacy coordinators that come onto set or in rehearsals to actually provide that support to actors but back in those days that didn't exist but i always had a very strong sensibility about how i worked with actors rehearsal process a process that would enable actors to explore things in a very safe way and so sex sex scenes were were no different so i never really saw a difference between doing a dance scene, for example, or Mm. a sex scene. They both required the same amount of thinking, careful construction, and also understanding the purpose of the scene. Why am I going to show this scene? What's this scene really about for the character? It's not just the sex. It's about what that sex is expressing for the character and the character's journey. And if you try and divorce those two things, then it becomes just a sex scene, which is potentially exploitative or, or not very interesting. But if you're exploring six because it's a, it's a crucial part of that character's story, their, their very essence or their very being as it was for Ari, then as you talk about that with the actors, they can relate to it, they understand it, and they then end up viewing it like every other scene that you're about to do then, yes, there's logistics of how much nudity, uh, how much you're going to expose the actor in a physical sense. And those consultations and conversations, for me, always take place in that rehearsal space, in that mm. safe space. So if an actor says, I don't want to do this, I'm not going to do it. There's no way that I would do something if an actor doesn't consent to ways of doing it and ways of representation, and I have to say that as a filmmaker who's done a lot of sex scenes over the years, mm-hmm. um, not just in in the context of Head On, but in many other productions, yeah. that's been a very big thing for me to to create a consensual safe space for actors to explore things that are vital. And if they're not vital, I don't do them. You know, I mean, I you know I've done a lot of TV as well, and certainly if a script has got sex in it and I go, why are we doing this? You know, if there's another way to do it or express it, I will always prefer to do it that way. So it's not about, it's not about being coy. It's more about saying, why are we doing this? What's, what, what's its purpose? And that's why I think that level of sensitivity comes through because the actor feels very safe and they know why they're doing it, you know. And then they can freely bring themselves to it, you know, so they don't feel constrained. And yet that lack of constraint is liberating for them but gives the moment ultimately what we all search for in storytelling and and performance and that is truth, finding truth in moments.
0: It sounds like it's almost like the opportunity for the actor to discover the character themselves on a deeper level.
2: Absolutely, totally. So, you know, I sometimes joke, sometimes, you know, like I have in everything I do now, I always have a director's attachment, so someone who comes and learns. And when I try and explain to them what I do, you know, I kind of try and say, I try. I put it simply, I, I, I'm kind of almost like the Greek shepherd. Um, mm-hmm. There's a sort of a gate, you know, that I might lead the actors through and we wander and meander around, but I know where that other gate is that I want to take them through and I slowly shepherd them to that gate. So my role is both shepherding. My role is allowing the actor to explore, to ask questions, to bring themselves, their individuality to the character it's not like you're saying oh this character is like what I look for in an actor or what I try and promote in the actor is that they bring their essence to that character and it's that individuality that makes the character memorable and therefore the performance memorable and that's the process that I use Um, so I have very strong views about what I want but I also am leading the actors to a place where they are going to express themselves in a way that is completely and utterly distinctive because it's them it's no one
0: else so it's all about the symbiotic nature of collaboration for you totally
2: yeah it's very symbiotic it's very process driven it's very organic but at the same time as I said I, I have very strong views but if an actor offers something to me that I haven't thought about that I think is a better idea then I'm there I'm with them it is a it, it's very symbiotic and you enter a very intense collaboration while you're making the film and. Often actors come out the other end and they go, what just happened? Oh, my God, what what just happened? Where have I been? What have I just done?
0: (laughs) You've put them into a trance, it sounds like. It's
2: almost like like. a trance-like sort of state, you know?
0: Through all its provocation, Head On by Anna Kokinos is one of the great groundbreaking and boundary-breaking films in Australian film history. There are about two decades between Head On and our next featured film, Of An Age, by Goran Stalewski, and a lot happens between those two films. So once again, I'm going to be joined by Spirit Economopolis to talk about what happens in and around those two films and the two decades between them. Let's kind of talk about that cycle of films in the 1990s where we start Mm -hmm. seeing queer cinema becoming very celebrated in Australia and almost... I mean between the sum of us and Priscilla both coming out in within like a month of each other in 94
1: Yeah yeah it was quite a explosion wasn't it I feel actually I, th- I think a lot of it was a lot more to do with uh, it was like a celebration of camp mm. I think more than anything because you know it feels like films like Strictly Room as well and Love Serenade there were a whole bunch of films that were really I guess uh, Yeah, Mural's Wedding that kind of really embraced that aesthetic. Mm. And Australia seems to have a really interesting kind of relationship and history with it. I mean, I've I've always thought it was amazing that Can't Stop the Music, which is like a camtastic musical with the village people. Was a flop in everywhere in the world except for Australia, who we embraced it, yeah. we loved it, you know. And so, I think it's kind of really interesting the relationship that Australia has to campness. And uh, I think that kind of is sort of where a lot of these kind of movies were springing from. But, you know, there's some really great exceptions, obviously. Like, I, I you know, one that I really kind of hold really highly is Love and Other Catastrophes, which had a really open lesbian characters in it. And, and I think what was really groundbreaking about that was that, you know, we talk about it quite a bit now, the idea of, you know, wanting to have cinema where characters just happen to be gay, and that's that's you know that's sort of not part of the plot. And Love and Other Catastrophes did that really early on, where the, the main protagonist was queer, and uh, you know there was no kind of there wasn't really any discussion around it. I thought they they did it really
0: fantastically, and it holds up really well still. How would you describe what Australian quiz cinema was in between those films, like in the interim, the basically two decades?
1: Yeah, look, I, I think, as I said before, I feel like there was a bit of a trickle in terms of, you know, films like Head On and uh, Only the Brave as well, Lana mm-hmm. Kokkinis' other film, Love and Other Catastrophes and then suddenly, you know, you, we didn't see those floodgates open. But I think that what's happened now is that there's been a big change culturally everywhere, and I think Australian cinema and, and art is really reflecting that. You know, obviously we've had the gay marriage debate as well, and I think those kind of touchstones have, you know, really great ramifications and you know roll-on effects in terms of popular culture and art. And so, you know, we are seeing, I, I think, a lot more kind of queer representation on television. You know, Neighbors has had you know trans characters and gay marriage, and, and in cinema as well, where I think it's becoming much more kind of widespread and common. And uh, and I think a lot of that more has to do with you know culture changing, you know, more than anything.
0: It's almost like it's become less compartmentalized.
1: Yes, exactly. Yeah, it's become very much part of the, you know, like the, the threads of stories and characters in everyday, and I think that's really great to see. And we've got a really yeah, some really great kind of mainstream, you know, mainstream gay characters uh, who are part of popular culture now, which is cool.
0: I think one thing that you said that really resonated with me was the idea of like social change and its like impacts or how it's reflected in cinema. And the idea of the same sex marriage vote that we had in Australia, I believe that's around the same time that holding the man Maybe Holding Man is a year before that when it comes out in cinemas.
1: Yeah, I can't can't sort of yeah, I can't recall the kind of dates to be honest with you to connect that. But it's probably you know it is a sort of a similar time where where we're beginning to see that sort of moment. You know, not too dissimilar, I guess, in a way where you're looking at things like censorship laws relaxing in the seventies and that actually opening up. You know, the way that we look at the way sexuality is represented and stuff like that, and obviously, you know, these kind of Touchstones in, you know, history kind of, you know, really do pave the way for, you know, these stories, I think, in
0: a a good way. This brings us to the modern masterpiece Of An Age, from filmmaker Goran Stalevsky, who you might remember from our episode about the new wave of Australian horror cinema. Of An Age exhibits an unparalleled tenderness. It begins as a road movie, capturing the building intimacy between two young men, and then we catch up with them for their reunion a decade later.
3: I remember growing up. I was convinced I'd travel the world. Just meet these mind-blowing people. Connect. Jesus.
1: You're like 11. i 18 in like three weeks. Are you jaded yet? You jaded.
0: Shut up. You're like my sister, is that it? Yeah. No, but we're more like really good friends. Yeah, but he's tight.
2: Night's out with boys. I was not out with boys. I was with Cole. Cole is not boys. I
0: know she can be like a mess. But Watching your two features back to back yesterday was like truly a mesmerizing experience. I think I've come to the opinion now that for me, you're like the modern master of the close-up and I just love your use of them, especially in Of An Age They feel like the secret to portraying of masculinity in a way they're so sensitive and sensual. It's like this hidden world. Can you talk to me how you discovered your love for the close-up or like as a means to
3: tell emotional story? Mm. I mean, my background is in DIY short films. Uh, I made like 25 of them before I ever got to make a feature. And most of them were made with no money, you know, and, and very often no crew or just volunteers, you know, who have never been on set. So... There was a pattern of trying to turn very mundane situations into something cinematic or poetic with next to no means. And you know, when you don't have access to production design or like amazing locations. I did, after a while, figure out the pattern of like, if you just frame something, you know, n- there's nothing more exciting than the human face. Like there's nothing more cinematic than that, you know? And it kind of was happening unconsciously for a while. I remember, you know, showing my short films to people and them going, Wow, you really love your close-ups. And I was like, I have no idea what you mean. <laughs> and eventually I picked up on the pattern. <laughs> and yeah, and even just you know the work of filmmakers I love, like Bergman or Almodovar, you know, very different styles, obviously. But it's the close-ups that that hit you the hardest. And when something is that emotionally potent and also quite manageable even under stressful circumstances. With limited means it just felt like the obvious way to go and the other trick i've figured out is that in most filmmaking not just my own uh you know 90 percent of every scene plays out in a close-up whereas in traditional uh movie making patterns you shoot the wide shot first and you're moving th- for the mids and you do the close-up at the end and b- i feel like by that point everyone is tired and they're not really giving you that electricity and rawness that comes in in the very first moments. so i tend to start with the close-ups myself and then push out, and I found with often age, I didn't really want to push out much at all. Once we covered the close-ups, I felt like, you know what, I'm, I'm in this space now, I don't want to leave. And I think with me, every moment in every movie is shaped by how, how does the character, the protagonist feel, or the main person in the scene, how do they feel? How do I put the viewer in their skin? And with Age, especially, like it's a teenage kid, for most of it, whose attention span and sense of space is very compromised. Like I feel like in your teenage years, like you kind of, this is the aspect ratio of your life, yeah. you know? <laughs> uh, you rarely get to zoom out, you're so easily overwhelmed. And, and yeah, like once I entered that space with the guys, and, and with Hattie as well, who plays Ebony, I felt like, you know what, I'm getting all the story here. And yeah, so now, I'm very much known for close-ups. it Turns out now it's your trademark, uh, yeah. and
0: it came about naturally as well. That's how you want a trademark to work, right? Yeah,
3: I, I think most of the trademarks do. Like I, I don't know. I think there's very few geniuses, if any, in the world that kind of had a vision out of nowhere and then pursued it and like got it on film and be- it became a trademark. It's I think most of them come from like trial and error and happy accidents uh, and discoveries. I think
0: for me as well.
3: Like of an age, I did see it at the Myth premiere
0: last year. Mm. And I think one thing that really stuck with me is there's this elegant simplicity to the structure that really floors me. It's so simple and it really allows the viewer to zone in on like the growth of these characters over this time period, like through this juxtaposition. Like how did you
3: find that structure to tell this story? Was it always apparent to you? Well, it was sort of I, I am again, also chasing simplicity as much as possible in terms of like the basic crux and concept of a story. And then I feel like you kind of zone in on details to kind of deepen it. And with Oven Age, yeah, as I said, you know, most of it came to me in that one like manic episode in the middle of the night. And then I typed out as many notes as I could, and then I started writing it properly and laying it out. And after a week I thought I had written what was the whole idea. My whole idea was just the nineteen ninety-nine section. I had nothing else. And then I realized it's only 75 pages and no one is going to make this film. <laughs> you know, it's like a <laughs> 75 primary movie. And then as I was writing it, I was kind of just going, uh, you know, like, was this going to get compared to if it gets made? And I thought Before Sunrise uh, was mm. the inevitable point of comparison. And I was like, oh, I wonder what their Before Sunset would be. And that was just, you know, a thought at wow. the back of my head. And I've had it with another film that I, the first feature I ever wrote, I was like... I'd love to set it up like an Antoine Wandel kind of thing, where you just visit the character for like five or ten years, because mm. that's totally viable in today's market and economy. But anyway, um, but we I've love always art house sequels. I mean, we love those art house. Sequels. Yeah, and, and people throw money at you if you suggest that, <laughs> and you're not. We should link later. Um, <laughs> no, but like I, 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 I've always been drawn to that. Like visiting someone every 10 years and even in my own life like I sort of living here most in Australia most of my life and going back every three years like this pattern of how much someone changes and how relationships shift in a way that's really unpredictable and then how many parallels and things keep existing I've always been really interested you know as a structural point that I used in other films as well and then yeah as I said there were only 75 pages and I was like all right well let's write the next 25 and it's 10 years later you guys And I wrote that overnight in a whole other manic episode um, because I'd kind of been, like, using that as a framing reference in terms of, you know, getting a sense of the characters, like, going, oh, you want to know what will will happen to them afterwards anyway just so you know them, you know, yourself, when you're writing it. And then it was like, all right, well, I was going to keep this a secret, but (laughs) now it's going to come in handy.
0: I think that's really, like, because it is so built on the characters, it works so beautifully because it's just, like, You see them at one point in their life, then you catch up with them later and you have to discover the change. Mm. And so much of that comes through in these three primary performances, which to me are like nothing short of breathtaking. I'd love to kind of hear about your creative collaborations with your key cast. I'd I'd seen Elias Anton in Barracuda, Mm. but like how... How close was he to the character as you were inventing it? Or did you shape that character together?
3: When I'm casting, I'm looking for the person I find most interesting, that kind of vaguely fits the uh, description or not, not entirely a lot of the time. And then I usually try to adapt the story or the character to the actor rather than vice mm. versa. Uh, so with Elias, I, I did that. I mean, initially he didn't even come through in the first couple of shortlists with my casting agent because physically he was nothing like what was described in the script. But then when I finally saw his tape, like, I felt like there was, he was the first kid, and, you know, he's a grown adult, but to me, I'm mom, they're my kids. Um, yeah. So, like, he was the first kid that came through that, like, I could see, like, a sense of a life lived in the eyes. I, I think usually with most young people auditioning, I mean, most young actors, there's, and inevitably, they come from quite safe, comfortable backgrounds, and you can just see the money in their eyes, even when they're trying mm-hmm. to invent, you know, mimic pain. And it's just like, it's not what I was looking for and I felt it would be wrong for the character and the film. With Elias, I I bought it. I was like, this is a kid that's lived a life. And then I met him and I I mean, I was less confident he could do the younger version. I think it's a lot harder because he was 23, I think at the time I met him. I think it's harder to play someone with more maturity and lived experience than what you have rather than less. So it was a matter of trying to see how much he could capture that, the the older, you know, Nicola. And then, you know, I kind of wrote little, made little changes that you know probably seem cosmetic to a you know stranger, but like they're little key things to make the person feel more real, to make the character more connected to how Eli- Elias was in real life. But then he sort of, it was actually kind of fascinating. Like uh, we shot all the '99 stuff first, and then we shot 2010 at the end, and I kind of, we all kind of saw him grow up, you know, like in this way that was just like breathtaking. I've never witnessed something like that where you go like. You saw him mature uh, in real time. Like, he became mm. this, like, man, essentially, on the inside, you know? And, like, a lot of the changes I'd made, I just changed them back to what was written. Because <laughs> it's like, okay, no, this, you can do this. Uh, this is no longer a problem at all. You wow. tell me, take me where you will. And, and yeah, I feel very lucky with all three of them, to be honest. Because there were a couple of other interesting actors I met, but no one would have been, you know, close in terms of for this particular character or these three characters
0: yeah Yeah. i think that's so beautifully put because with Elias, it's kind of there's also like this beautiful physicality to the character Mm. i think between your two films as we've seen them so far there's like this really interesting physicality in this idea of the body is that something that fascinates you is like the physicality
3: i mean i think uh you you need it like you can't be acting from the neck up like you have to be a person to, to to make it believable especially with this kind of like you know, very close-up driven, very intense, naturalistic, documentary-style cinema, you kind of, all of you, has to be, you know, it needs to be a full-body performance. And, uh, you know, sex and physicality are very important to both of these films. And, yeah, even in the early conversations, like, a lot of the time of, you know, trying to talk Elias through the transition in terms of, like, the 10 years later, it was, like, talking more about how he would stand. And um, even just, like, when you walk into a room, uh, you're kind of more aware of things quicker when you're older and you're more relaxed and just think about how does it affect your body to be like less overwhelmed all the time, you know? And, you know, these were conversations we had weeks before the shoot so that, you know, he could absorb all this because once we came on set, it was a very, I I follow instinct more than anything else. I don't like to Mm. make things too cerebral. I think that's where uh, wankery (laughs) lies, (laughs) not really art. So, yeah, I think, you know, he had absorbed these conversations, but also it was, again, just really uncanny where, like, he became younger when we were shooting those scenes. Mm-hmm. And, and to me, it's like, I, I think um, a lot of people don't pick up consciously on what he's doing in the car rides when he's a younger kid. Like, you're watching him, and it, it genuinely looks like a boy falling in love. Like, you know, the way he's looking at Tom's character, I was just like, you know like overwhelmed, watching, watching him, you know, watch this other guy. Um, and even that's about physicality and, you know, and I think you need to absorb the character so much that you're doing these things unconsciously because he wasn't really thinking about it, you know, in that way, uh, not at least while we were shooting. He prefers to like, you know, even the lines, he's absorbed them and then like, he doesn't think about it. He prefers to let like feelings take over. And that's kind of the main way of working with actors that I prefer and the f- one I find most reliable
0: that's beautiful yeah that just it just really shows like i like you said you see those little moments those little touches of him falling in love or him finding that attraction it's just man i gotta say just so beautiful i just love it so much (laughs) keep going (laughs) (laughs) as well with like tom green's performance it feels like so natural and so just like an assured performance even warm and nurturing Mm. what was it like discovering that performance together
3: the key word was nurturing um actually um I was like the other you know Nicole is a princess you're the nurturer Tom <laughs> like, yeah <laughs> <laughs> um so great great that that came through in that way so literally Tom is very much someone who can be in control mm. of a tone and I think there's only one other actor I've worked with where I have this experience of like it, while you're watching it it's so raw and visceral that it feels very unguarded. But I think there are fair few actors who can exercise that kind of control over material and still be very real and very natural and feel very like again, raw and visceral. Because again, what the eyes are doing, you know, Mm. it's it doesn't feel rehearsed or planned. And at the same time it's very hypnotic. And if you've ever met Tom, you'll realize he's exactly the opposite personality to Adam in wow. every way imaginable. <laughs> so it was kind of fascinating. And, you know, I want to work with him again, on, I mean, many projects, but like, is this sense of, because a lot of people, you know, tend to mistake me for Nicola because I look a lot like him and my demographics match. But, you know, mm. a lot, my personality is probably way closer to Adam in many ways. And not that that should matter because, you know, the actor has freedom to just create his own character and personality, I think. And also, I wanted to capture some of like, Tom's essence as a human in himself, so that's preserved within the film, and like in some of the improv, it definitely comes through. But I was also just like kind of blindsided by how much of my own inner life and behavioral tics and things I saw reflected back at me in Tom's performance. I, I feel like, you know, if I ever wanted to write an avatar for myself, you know, a character who's an avatar for myself in a film, like I've literally never met someone who can do it like genuinely come up with every nuance I could possibly come up with and then build some more on top of that. Because we're very, very different people in real life. Like we're extremely close, but, you know, as personalities, we're so different. And it makes no sense to me (laughs) how like that works. Um, And it's also like, you know, I've seen him play serial killers and criminals just as effortlessly, (laughs) like, and that kind of range is rare in a human being uh, in general. So again, I'm a very lucky guy.
0: (laughs) Wow. That's beautiful. The film has like all these beautiful references to art and Wong Kar-wai's queer cinema classic, Happy Together. And that kind of like builds the beauty of the bond that they share. How does queer cinema and cinema inform your work?
3: Mm. Well, I grew up with it. Like I was watching queer films and physically responding to them without being aware of it before, yeah, before I even knew it was gay kind of thing. You know, I was a massive film nerd from age 12. And yeah, I was watching a model of our films and Todd Haynes and Happy Together, I think it would've been like 14, 15 when I first started discovering them. And it was sort of like, uh, you know, even again, beyond the label of sexuality there, uh, and you know, like obviously a part of me responded specifically to the queerness in a queer way, but also there was another element of just like, I don't know, I think with great art of any kind, it's about making sense of life or, or imbuing the meaninglessness of life with some meaning, you know? And that's what I look for in my favorite artists. Like when you kind of tap into this frequency, then you're gonna end up trying to track down every film they've made. And I've, I've had that experience with Amorovar, Gardner's I've had it with Todd Haynes and Wong Kar Wai, um, lots of other queer filmmakers as well. And I think it's more that. Like I don't really look at look for influences in the sense of technique or. Structure, it's more just I, I look for that feeling I got when I was 14 or 15 and I discovered a new filmmaker. When I discovered Jim Jarmish and was like, I have to watch mm-hmm. every film he's made, or you know, when I discovered Ozu, but like the third time, because the first and the second time I didn't get it, I was <laughs> bullshitless. And then the third time I was <laughs> like, it's that just plug time. it into my veins, you know, and it's a universe <laughs> I've come across. Like, and before I even made You Won't Be Alone, and to a lesser extent with Oven Age, I had less time then. I watched all these movies that I grew up watching that I hadn't seen in a while, like all the Bergmans and like mm. I actually watched a lot of Ozu, not because I was trying to learn the technique, but to connect with the kid I was who like, you know, mm. you're chasing that feeling. You want to give that feeling to someone else so that they end up wanting to watch all of your films later on. This episode that we're talking about today is
0: all about like breaking boundaries and queer cinema in Australia. Mm-hmm. What are your thoughts on Australian queer cinema and what kind of effect do you hope your films have? On the
3: future of that canon mm. there's a glaring gap in it right <laughs> a, I remember trying to make a, a, a very different queer drama about 2012 2013 and like trying to use references you know in the Australian context was almost impossible like there was head-on which is mm. amazing and then what, what happened I, I mean technically there was dead Europe at some point and then holding the man was like what 15 years later or something like it was a very It was a very long stretch where there was no queer cinema. I think that's shifted quite a bit uh, in very immediate recent past. Hopefully, I mean, you know, obviously, there's been a a bunch of queer stories this year as well. And hopefully, you know, I mean, I have every confidence it'll continue. Because also, you know, even just like categories of sexuality have, you know, expanded and opened out now more. And there's just more of an awareness. And like, I was even just like quite shocked that, In my film school years there were not that many queer kids within the school Mm. you know which you you go like it's basically a drama school it should be 90 percent gays of whatever description but no it was it was very few you know and there were very few gay stories being produced as your main short film even i didn't do it and it wasn't like out of reticence or anything but it was a coincidence but still like i think that's shifted significantly and I've met or addressed so many young Australian filmmakers in the last two years. Um, I think they're all collectively really sick of me telling the same stories over and over again. But like, there's definitely a lot more diversity of every kind. So I think there's been a lot more progress made. And I'm sure that's going to be reflected in the work that comes. And I think the, you know, so-called gatekeepers, for lack of a better term, are also very aware of it and supportive of it. I do think, though, like, what we never talk about is just the quiet bigotry of the audience. Because, you know, like, it's really easy to bitch about the industry, uh, Screen Australia and all these things. But ultimately, in Australia, when it comes to art house cinema, the primary audience is elderly people who go to the cinema. And they're not very open-minded, frankly, not just about sexuality, even about, like the most foreign they can do is French, (laughs) like most of the time. And it's really hard to justify, you know, funding for films without you relying on a kind of audience that's sophisticated and progressive and responsive to this. So I think, I don't know if there's a way to work on expanding that audience base and growing it, or maybe it needs to evolve in a different way, but like, this is a really this is a real thing, and I think the less you acknowledge it, the more you just you know find another bad guy because we one almost to blame the audience. But frankly, I'm really ready to by now, like because for ages, especially even with Screen Australia, the aim was to support films that would attract an Australian audience in cinemas, and the kind of films that did that did that were very not just ideologically but very aesthetically conservative as well. I think that's shifted in the last three years. I hope. It continues going in this direction, but these things go in waves. So, you know, I'm hopeful, but there's a way for it to splash back. And I hope none of us want that again.
0: Something I spoke about at the start of this episode was the idea of these films challenging Australian audiences. Or do Australian audiences feel challenged by sex and sexuality in cinema? I wanted to pose that as a question to these two filmmakers. Let's start with Goran. I spoke to Anako Kinos yesterday and I was talking to her about, about how Head On is such a challenging film. And then the queer cinema that kind of follows it in its wake or even surrounding it, they are so palatable and not mm. so challenging in comparison to that film at least. Mm, and I actually think that you've kind of found something quite personal because I feel like Australian audiences often are afraid to be challenged through art and especially Mm. like in terms of sex and sexuality.
3: I think in general, like, Australia has a really messed up relationship to sex. Like, in general. It's either something that's really dirty or something that's really coy. Um, And like, you're not very grown up about it, you know? And I don't mean you as in Australians, as in people here. I um, mean you as in me, right? No, I, I mean you directly. I'm like, see, <laughs> like, only you. The rest of us are fine. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, but I feel like, and that was, you know, uh, when I was shooting You Won't Be Alone in Europe, it was just such a different understanding of, you know, like, sex is normal and, like, we're telling a story. And, you know, I understand you know, concerns about making things that are just meant to titillate or be exploitative. Of course, we want to avoid that at all costs. But I think, I don't know, the way sex and nudity is approached here, and I also feel to an extent like the same in America and England. I don't know what it is about Anglo-Saxon societies. (laughs) Yeah, it's just a really messed up relationship to sex. And I really think we also need to evolve. Part of that also, I think, is an artist's responsibility to push the envelope. And, And yeah, you're very right. Like, I mean head-on feels 20 years ahead of even my work in terms of like how unafraid it is to confront, uh, and it's not even meant to shock or confront what the film is supposed to be doing uh, or what a director is supposed to be doing, following their material where it needs to go. And I don't think it's titillating at all. Like it's sexy, it's okay to be sexy, but like, you know, that's the thing, there's a difference. And I think it has a really adult relationship to sex and sexuality that, yeah, I don't know if I've even seen in straight, Australian cinema ever since, to be honest. Yeah, I don't think we've come
0: close to only maybe in like Anna's films themselves. Yeah,
3: that might be the exception. I <laughs> might, I'll try and think of another exception. There must be one other shortly, but anyway, it's not coming to me right now. <laughs> Anna, you've always been described as
0: a very provocative filmmaker. I want to know: Do you think Australian audiences feel challenged? by sex and sexuality on screen?
2: Look, I think they largely are. I mean, I think Australian audiences... I I think it's more that Australian audiences can sometimes fear drama, like intense drama, and that includes sex. The difference between sitting with an Australian audience and watching head-on or other films that I've made and, say, audiences in Spain or San Francisco or Mm. France or whatever, the tendency for Australian audiences here is that they need to laugh to release tension. So... I cannot tell you how many times I've sat through screenings where people will start laughing when it's not funny and completely inappropriate. Same experience overseas, and people don't laugh. People overseas generally can withstand the emotional impact that something has on them and not feel they have to laugh at it or to try and diffuse that tension. So that's, that's a cultural characteristic here, I think, you know, that we kind of... I think we want to be provoked and I think we, will, we, we relish it and yet it makes us feel uncomfortable. And so that would be my observation. That's not just sex, it's just really intense drama. Really, we do have this fear of having intense emotions expressed in a communal sense, in a, in a communal space, which is what cinema spaces are, which is what spaces where sto- you know, screen stories are being told. That's not across the board, but it is, it is a characteristic.
0: Yeah, that's so fascinatingly put because I think that it is the duty of art to challenge its audience.
2: Totally, I agree. It's the duty of art to to express things that we prefer not to talk about or wish to avoid. Art is Art should be a provocation. Art should allow us the space to go on journeys that feel uncomfortable or make us think. But at the same time, art also has a responsibility to provide stories we, that we can connect the truth of even if those truths are in fact uncomfortable that's the role of the artist it really is not just about content it's about what are we saying what am i saying in this story why is it important and the other thing that's really important is what you want an audience to do is to watch it and go "Aha! Uh-huh. i am not alone that experience is a, an experience that i understand and that i've had and by embracing that experience, it tells me that I, the thoughts that I have are not just my own, but are also shared with others. And so it goes back to being queer. When you're young and you start realising that you have sexuality that is different, if you feel like you're completely on your own and on the outer and there's no one who's going to understand you, that's the worst position that you can be in. But that was my experience growing up when I realised I was gay. That was my experience growing up when I realised I was a lesbian. It was kind of like you, you feel isolated and you feel on your own. That's why screen stories are so important, that if we reflect something about our diversity in terms of sexuality, in terms of culture, our social perspectives, the more you do that, the more people go, wow, I have seen something that I connect to that tells me that I'm not alone in these feelings about... X, Y, Z, or whatever it might be, you know. And that's the power of cinema. That's the power of screen stories.
0: That's the power of cinema. Words after my own heart. Talking to these filmmakers has kind of left me with a lot of passion for the future of cinema. So I want to talk to Spirit Economopoulos one more time to talk about what direction he thought queer cinema was heading in.
1: I think it will be become something more of a lot like i was talking about before love and other catastrophes you know the idea of a you know character is gay but that you know they're just you know it's just not it's not part of the story but they just happen to be gay and i think there's going to be a lot more of that i would say potentially and look you know I love something like Of An Age because, you know, it's just a really fantastic queer love story and I think it's great that, you know, we're able to see films like that, you know, have relative success as well represented. And, yeah, look, it would be interesting to see how, you know, I, I imagine there will be, you know, a lot more and a lot more kind of common representation of queerness in cinema and I think also the other thing we're seeing now is the you know a real conversation around trans identity and trans voices in particular kind of being represented which is something that's been very underrepresented in Australian cinema and now where I think that's where actually the radical sort of next step's going to be in terms of what those voices are that representation and seeing more of that on the big screen and seeing films like you know again with my role in the festival i started seeing so many films that were you know trans identifying characters and you know filmmakers and i think that's where it's going to be really interesting and exciting
0: as well yeah i have to agree with you because i feel like it almost feels like that's the way it happens in australia is you start seeing a cycle happen and you start seeing it be someone perhaps collaborating with someone from a background mm. of something else that yeah. that is not always represented in the mainstream, and then eventually you see people that are actually from that community being the ones leading those projects and leading them, becoming leading cinematic voices.. Yeah. And I think you, you notice the difference in the voice straight away when it
1: is led by those creatives as well. Like you kind of go, oh, this is a, it seems like a really exciting voice and it's becoming, it's coming from a really authentic place as well. And, but, you know, I think, I think you said it before. I think it's a really good point. You know, I think ultimately we're in a small industry and for us to also see a real multi-representation of different stories and characters, you know, we need to be making a lot more films as well. And, I guess maybe that was what was exciting about the you know the 80s in australia with the tax incentive that meant there were a lot of movies kind of getting made and you know there was this amazing you know, exploitation genre stuff coming out. And I, you know, I kind of miss that era. Yeah. I've got to say. So, you know, I would
0: like, I'd like to see more of that. Yeah, bring it back, I say, always. Yeah,
1: absolutely. I want to
0: see some crazy stuff on the screen and crazy 100%. stuff getting made here. 100
1: Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I want to feel a bit more of that kind of danger a little bit as well in um, strange cinema. I sort of feel like, you know, we, we do play it a little bit safe as well. I think it'd be amazing to see, you know, imagine the next queer film coming from like a, you know, a queer Somalian or, you know, set in Melbourne or something, you know, that, the other generations of migrants. I think that's where, you know, that cinema could be really exciting and something really groundbreaking that I'm, I'm really kind of curious to see. And, you know, I think Of An Age just quite simply is just a really gorgeous love story and a really well-made film and, you know, whatever, whatever identities, backgrounds, the characters are from, I think it's kind of really wonderful.
0: Thank you for joining me on Sunburn Screens, of the Australian cinema odyssey once again. If you are ripped, primed and ready to dive into queer cinema yourself, we've got a beautiful selection of head-on and other queer classics and films about outsiders curated for you on Broly. So click on through and start watching. We're going to take a bit of a mid-season break over the holiday period. But we'll be back early next year with another batch of four explorations into Australian cinema. So I hope you'll join us in the new year. I'm Alexi Toliopoulos, and until then, I'll see you at the movies.